0: Well, this morning we are starting something new and I'll just have to uh, say as we get started, uh, you'll have to forgive me for the sniffling and coughing which are sure to come. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, feel free to sniffle and cough <coughs> as many of you are as well. Uh, so this morning we are looking at uh, the Messiah, specifically seeing Jesus in the covenants and promise promises of redemption together now this is a a uh, a little bit divergent for us because normally what we do our normal practice together is that we begin at the beginning of a particular book of the bible and we work through it word by word verse by verse And for the next five weeks, this is more thematic in nature, or you might say topical, but what we're doing is we're working through a biblical theological concept of the coming of Christ and how Jesus was anticipated from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. Okay? So that's what we're doing. We're seeing God's one big grand story together, specifically how it relates to Christmas, because it is a Christmas season after all, isn't it? All right, we're going to begin this morning by looking at Ephesians 1, if you would like to turn there in your Bible with me, please. This is going to set the stage for us. It's going to set the stage not only for this morning, but the stage for all these next five weeks to come. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read this morning verses 5 through 11. And it says, some of this we read already this morning, but this is in a more fuller context. It says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, and in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So as I said, the Christmas season is upon us. And what should be filling our minds at this time is concerning God's plan of sending his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. It should be filling our minds. A lot of things fill our minds at this time of the year, but what should be filling our minds, what should well? not only should uh, Christ Jesus constantly be occupying our thoughts, that all of our thoughts are conformed to him, But we should be, in particular, as we do by tradition, is focus our emphasis and our thinking on the coming of Christ at his birth some 2,000 years ago. Now, it is this plan, it's the idea of this plan that's going to hold our attention. God planned for Jesus to come to this earth. You know that. This was God's plan. This was God's plan A. God does not have a plan B. I've said that to you before, and it is true. God has one plan. And he's working that plan out. Rob, if you would, please put that first image up there. I have several images I'm going to show you this morning that I have created for our time together over these next five weeks. Now, if you can't see this, or you can't see what's being said here, or if you can't understand, it's okay. Actually, I hope you will understand it more today as we go through our time together, but specifically as we go through all five weeks together, okay? So, what's being said here? This is a timeline of events. And the general timeline of events of God's great redemptive history, that is, the full scope of human history, is creation starts at the beginning, right? That's when all things came to be. And then the fall happens. That's an important timeline event. The fall, that is when the first Adam sinned against God and it had repercussions not only on humanity but on creation itself. But then there is the act of redemption And this is when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem all those who had fallen into sin by means of Adam's curse. And then one day there will be the new creation. You see that? So where does the timeline of God's events go? It starts where? Creation and it ends where? the New creation. It's very simple. It starts with a man, Adam, and it ends with another man who is in our scriptures indicated as the last Adam. So it goes from creation to new creation, from first Adam to last Adam, but there is a, uh, quite a bit that happens in between, right? It's where we find ourselves today. Uh, so it is God's plan, I will just say this. Like I said, there is only one singular linear plan of God and you can see that indicated there, it's a straight line. However, you notice in the middle there, the line gets a little harder to see and it's dotted and we don't quite understand it as much. That's true and that's the whole point of our five weeks together is the blurriness of the plan of God. Never forget, never forget God has one plan and that plan is linear. That plan is singular. God never deviates from his plan. Do you ever deviate from your plans? Well, God is not like you. God is not a man. God became flesh, but it does not mean God is a man. God does not falter, he does not fail, he does not change his mind. God has one singular plan that he is seeing from beginning to end. And that plan includes creation, fall. The fall was part of God's plan. Yes, if it wasn't, it wouldn't have happened. Redemption and the new creation. He also had a plan for there to be a first Adam. He also had a plan for there to be a last Adam, right? God has the fullness of his plan in his mind all the time and he's seeing it through to the very end he never deviates from his plan but to our eye this is this is really the point to our eye though we don't always see the linear singular plan of God do we now that's at a big scale large scale idea but that's also in a small scale idea isn't it Uh, we can generally see God's course for our day what is what is the purpose of today well, I'm going to give God glory with everything that I have. I'm going to give him all of my strength, my might, and everything I do. I'm going to bless the Lord. That's what God would have for us today, generally speaking. Now, specifically, where are you going to be two hours from now? Although you have a plan, does that mean that you can see your plan through? You can plan to be at someone's house having lunch here in a little while, but it doesn't mean you'll get there. You understand? You understand? You have a plan in your mind, but it may not come to pass. God's plans are unlike your plans. His plans will come to pass. His plans do come to pass. He is God and not man. He is sovereign. He does not fail. And he is good. So God had a plan. And this plan is somewhat cloaked or shrouded in a mystery. We've been singing about that this morning, haven't we? God's plan is shrouded in a mystery. So although God's plan is singular and linear, it never deviates. To our eye, we don't get, we don't see that God's plan is singular. We don't understand the fullness of God's plan. But God has revealed things to us over time that we might come to understand in an ever-increasing and clarifying way what his plan is. Okay? God intends to use scripture to show us his plan But the question is, how does God intend to execute his plan? God has a plan, how is he going to execute his plan? Well, perfectly yes, but specifically how? So Rob, next slide please. So enter in the triangle, all right? Now, while this may look strange and somewhat cultic, I promise that it's not, okay? This is a visual aid for us to understand a biblical theological concept, okay? There is a timeline of events, and whether you can see it or not, this triangle represents God's revelation to us. While God's plan remains linear, singular, one path, and it is very narrow and defined, what we see and what God reveals to us is very large and generic and vague at first, but then it narrows in over time, and it becomes very specific for us to understand what exactly he's doing in Christ Jesus. Right, So that is the mystery of what he's doing, and that mystery made known in Christ Jesus. You understand? But it actually works progressively. God, at the very beginning, tells us something very, very vague, but even throughout the Old Testament, it becomes far more that is increasingly clearer to us. That triangle of vagueness narrows in and becomes more clear to us over time. And I'm arguing with you this morning that... The covenants and promises of redemption are the way in which that we see this triangle narrow in clarity and specificity that we might understand the plan of God over time, okay? Are you making it cooler in the room, Brett? Thank you. Everyone appreciates that. It may take some time, but it will cool off in here, okay? All right. <clears throat> so God is doing something. Go to, that, go to that next one if you would. Okay, so here we have some names. That is, Adam and Noah come up first, and then there is Abraham, and then we get to Israel, and then we get to David. And as we go through these characters or individuals, and I'm going to explain these, what God is doing becomes more visible to us and clear to us. Understand what I'm saying? That God did not randomly have figures throughout time and covenants with them, just randomly, haphazardly. But instead, actually, God is moving all of history to his predetermined end, is he not? So as he does that, the the covenants he makes with people, the promises of redemption that he makes, are moving on a path, on a line, to tell us a story. The covenants and the promises are telling us a story. God has how many stories? He has one story. That is the story of the redemption of his people through Jesus Christ Christ. And it takes us from creation to new creation, from first Adam to last Adam, okay? It is our quest, our goal, right, our mission. We're going to understand this throughout all these phases throughout our time. All right, next, next one. <clears throat> As we move progressively through this timeline, this is all an introduction, okay? It's meant to somewhat be fuzzy right now, okay? We're taking five weeks to understand the little image I've created here. But the image, remember, is not something I've just created. It's it's the portrayal of the biblical storyline. Okay? As we move from very vague things, we move to specific things, but additionally, we move from shadows, as the New Testament tells us, to substance. As we move through the timeline, we're going to see a general movement of things, from vagueness to specificity, Do you see the difference between Genesis 3.15, for example, and the prophecies concerning the suffering servant in Isaiah, concerning the same figure? One is very vague, one is very specific, but it's even more specific in the New Testament, isn't it? So we see a movement from vagueness to specificity. We also see a movement from shadows to substance, such as the sacrificial system and circumcision. Okay? Next one, Rob, please so in each covenant that God makes, there are particular representative figures. They are called covenant heads. It's important to understand this, because if you start reading your Bible, you pick up your Bible, you're like, I'm going to read the Bible. I've I've determined for the new year, I'm going to start reading my Bible, and you randomly, you choose to enter whatever book of the Bible you want, and you, for some reason, you're like, okay, Proverbs a day thing, whatever, and you're going to do that, you're not going to understand the fullness of the Bible without the big picture in mind. It's like doing a puzzle upside down and without the cover. You know, you guys use the cover to, to figure out the puzzle, right? You set it up here so that you can do the puzzle. That's how we all do puzzles, right? I'm Making an assumption. Uh, so we, we're looking at something and we're trying to get that to all fit, but we know the pieces fit together and we know the picture we're creating. If you don't have this, you have no idea what picture you're trying to create. The Bible makes no sense to you in these little chunks and pieces that so often it's given to us in. We need a full picture. We need a full story to make sense of what the Bible tells us in its individual places, right? So we have these figures throughout time. Adam and Noah. We have Abraham, Israel, and Moses. And then we have David and then Jesus. And these are representative of five covenants, okay? These representative heads are the figures associated with five covenants in scripture. You say, I don't know what a covenant is. I don't know who the covenant agreement is with. That's okay. There's meant to be a little bit of fuzziness right now. That's all right. Just know this because, go to that next one, Rob, because over over these next five weeks, we're gonna take these figures and show how they play a central role in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. Today, we're covering Adam and Noah. Next week, Uh, Sam is preaching, and he's going to be covering Abraham. The following week, the 17th, we're going to cover Israel and Moses. 24th, Christmas Eve, we're going to be talking about David, which is very fitting for Christmas Eve. If you don't understand why, then that's a great reason to make sure and be here. December 31st, uh, we're going to be looking at the new covenant with Jesus as the uh, representative or covenant head. Okay, so this is where we're headed. Five covenant heads correspond to our five weeks. Understand where we're headed? Understand our journey we're going on together? We're gonna make sense of this. We're gonna lay out God's plan as we understand it through God's covenants with people and we're gonna move from a very vague idea of what God is doing to a very narrow idea of what God is doing. But has God moved from vagueness to narrowness? From vagueness to more specific things? God never does that. But that's what our eyes see. That's how revelation is given to us. Vagueness at first and then clarity to follow. So God has revealed it, but it's not his plan. Don't think that God has changed his plan halfway through. For example, he created a covenant people, Israel, and they failed, so he's got to come up with a different type of people. So he created the church. It's like, okay, maybe these people will be you know, better. Uh, God never changed his plan. He has one plan, one plan, and we're looking at the foundation of that plan today. Okay, so turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's probably the best place to start. It's the beginning of your Bible. Of course, the word Genesis means beginnings. As you're turning there, by way of summary, I want to say a few things. You can go to the, you can go to the next one there, Rob. <coughs> I want to say a few things to you, and then we're going to look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. I'm going to give you an entire summary of what we're about to cover. You ready? The covenant relationship God establishes with Adam as a representative head of humanity, which represents all of creation, is upheld and confirmed in his covenant with Noah. And this upholding of the covenant with Noah is portrayed as a restart of creation with Noah as an Adam-like figure. That is, maybe this new representative head of the human race, Noah, and this new human race that comes about after all the evil people are wiped off off the planet, maybe these people will be a better group of people for God. As Noah and uh, all those after him fail miserably, uh, it becomes evident that God himself must act on behalf of fallen humanity because humanity is not going to cut it. We had the first humanity with the first Adam He comes in, and then eventually the wickedness of man increases on the earth. God wipes out all the wickedness of men through the flood, and yet men are still wicked even after God killed all the wicked people. How is that? So it becomes evident to us that God himself must act rather than a man because men are sinful even from their youth, as it will be told to Noah. Adam and Noah failed. Perfection and security will not be obtained by Abraham either. Perfection and security will not be obtained by Israel either. Perfection and security will not be obtained by David either. So, interestingly enough, a singular figure emerges in Scripture as a man who will one day destroy the enemy of God and establish an eternal covenant of peace between God and men. A man. But if all men are broken, failures, Even from their youth, how is God going to use a man to do this? We know the answer to that. That although he is a man, he is God in the flesh. And that is the Christmas story, isn't it? So this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the storyline of God. It begins in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. And so that's where we turn. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that's where we're going to stop. You know this story, don't you? Even if you're not familiar with much of the Bible, you know that God created Adam and Eve, and he created them in the likeness of God, in his image. And he created them male and female. You probably know that. Now, I'm going to break this down just a little bit. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I need to lay it as a groundwork. When you have a sequence of commands like this, that we see in scripture. It's gonna mark something particular for us, and knowing that almost every single Hebrew sentence begins with the word and. And, it just always starts with and, okay? Which is just a little mark, kinda looks like a seven almost in Hebrew, but almost every sentence in Hebrew begins with an and, and when it doesn't begin with an and, it tells us two different, two potentially different things. One, it marks the beginning of a new section, Oh, that makes sense. There's nothing for it to follow, right? And there's no and. So it marks the beginning of a new section. Or it stops the flow of events to give footnotes on what was just said. And it's exactly what we find right here in scripture, okay? Where do we find that? It says, verse 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. What we have here is One sentence that begins with and, and two more to follow that do not begin with and, and they're marking footnotes on the image of God. Okay? So the main idea is that God created man in his own image, footnote one, in the image of God he created him, footnote two, male and female he created them. Right? Additionally, five verbs follow this one sentence, and they fit into two primary categories. The first have to do with multiplying, and the second have to do with ruling. That's the two things that humanity is going to do. Multiply and rule. Have dominion. Fill the earth. Be fruitful. Those are the two things that humanity is created to do. Multiply and rule. So that's five commands. Be fruitful, right? Multiply. Fill the earth. That's all about multiplying, isn't it? And then there's two commands about ruling. Subdue it. Have dominion. That's God ruling. In order for them to multiply, God had to make them male and female. Do you agree? I hope you agree. He had to make them male and female in order for them to multiply. So God created them male and female and then gave them the command. So he enables them to do the very thing that he commands them to do. I created you male and female. Now take your maleness and your femaleness and go do something with it. Multiply. Fill the earth. Be fruitful. And then the second two things he also enables them to do. When he creates them in the image of God, he says, subdue it, have dominion over it. When God created mankind to be in his image, it means that he created them in a sonship capacity, that God is sovereign king over all the universe, but in his place, he has set his son, humanity. Now, in terms of God's kingship over all the earth, we are allowed part of God's kingship being made in the image of God. And so now we, kind of as his regents or vice-regents on the earth, we are given the capacity to rule and have dominion. Because who are we that we would rule over something that belongs to God? Think about that. Who are we to have dominion over God's creation? It's because he created us in his image that is from himself. You notice that all the animals were made after their kinds, and they were made after their kinds, and they were made after their kinds. That's what you'll find when you read the book of Genesis. And they were created after their kinds, and they were created after their kind. And then you get to humanity, and it said, and we were made after the kind of what? Of God himself. We are different. We are fundamentally different than all the rest of creation. It has been said we are the crowning touch on God's creation. We are made as his children. And as children, in the image of God, we have been given dominion and rulership capacity over the earth that he's created. Now, this is important because if we are considered sons of God, then we are also part of his family. And so there's a a connection, a relationship with God there, isn't there? God has an immediate and initial relationship with mankind. God is not distant from humanity. He is very near to them. We are made after his image after all. And humanity is given a command of God to go and do something with how he's created them. So the image of God has to do with two things. Sonship and rulership. Do you see that? Has to do with sonship and rulership. That's what it is to be created in the image of God and after his likeness. So first point, a relationship exists between God and man. And we see it immediately. As God created humanity, now this is important. If you see no connection between humanity and God, then God has no obligation to humanity. You need to follow what I mean by obligation. He gives himself the obligation because he enters into relationship with them. He obligates himself by entering into relationship with his creation. Another way this can be seen, maybe this is something you know or do not know, What's very interesting is that in Genesis chapter 1, you know that Genesis chapter 1 is a, a large view of, of a, or, or a grand scale view, we're like backed up from it and we see the whole picture of creation, and then chapter 2 zooms in on just day 6. You know that? Do you also know that in chapter 1, the name for God is Elohim? Always, every single time, Elohim. But when it changes over to chapter two, focusing in on on God and humanity, the the word for God is actually a phrase, Yahweh Elohim. And Yahweh is the covenant name of God. So when you move from chapter one to chapter two, it emphasizes what? The relationship, the covenant relationship that God has with humanity. Okay? Okay. We also know that God entered into a covenant with Adam in the beginning. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Listen to what it says. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Talking about Israel. They dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. What covenant? Has it been said? And we're not able to go into the details of all the text of these chapters this morning. But it has not been said. And God made a covenant with Adam. Those words don't exist but it becomes very clear that a covenant relationship exists it does god is in covenant relationship with humanity second point mankind is given the job then of representing god in the world ruling over the creation that he has made we understand that so far mankind is given the job of representing god as his what as his sons Go and do. Go and make more humans and rule over this creation. But isn't it your job, God, to make humans and rule over your creation? But He has put humanity in that place. Unbelievable. So, this is not necessarily about the process of creation so much as it is about the product of creation. God is establishing his rule through a covenant relationship with humanity. So, Adam, as a son of God, he is also a type of priest. Because what is a priest? What does a priest do? A priest mediates the presence of God, right? And was Adam in the presence of God? Did Adam stand in the presence of God? Yes. He is also a son of God, so he is also a priest of God. And by the way, that makes Eden a garden sanctuary. Because the very presence of God is there walking around. That's pretty unbelievable. And he has given him the task of ruling the whole creation as a king. And he has given him his word as a prophet. So just understand who the first Adam is. He is a son of God, and he is a prophet, priest, and king. And who is the last Adam? Son of God perfect prophet, priest, and king. From the first Adam to the last Adam, we see things unfold. Now that we've moved from this and Adam and the covenant with God, all sounds hunky-dory. All sounds wonderful. God has made man and God is in relationship with humanity and they're gonna go and they're gonna be fruitful and multiply and they're gonna give the praise to God forever and all will be wonderful. Except that's not how it goes, is it? what happens next? Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Adam, as the representative head of humanity and all creation, he is given a particular stipulation that will enable him and those after him to remain in perfect fellowship with him in paradise, because isn't that where they are? They're in paradise in the presence of God, but there is one thing that they must not do in order to maintain this place and this relationship with God. They have relationship with God and they're in paradise and if they would just stay doing this, they could stay there forever. Genesis 2.16, And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Which means, if Adam dies, what does he not have anymore? He doesn't have, well, life, true. But what he doesn't have is a relationship with God anymore. How could he? Right? He doesn't have a relationship with God anymore. So what happens in our terms? right, by our terms, I mean our terms, that fellowship with God is broken. And what do we need, ultimately? Fellowship with God to be renewed. And if you didn't know, that's why our church is called Fellowship Renewed Church. Okay? Fellowship with God is broken, and what Christ does is he renews that fellowship. That's looking way ahead. That's not where we're at. So what happens next? Well, the man and the woman don't obey God. They disobey God. They eat from the tree they were told not to eat from. Isn't that right? Unfortunately, perfect fellowship with God in paradise is lost. They had perfect fellowship with God in paradise, didn't they? And perfect fellowship with God in paradise was lost. But here it is. This is for many people in the room. Not much as new news to you yet. You know all of this. But here comes A central piece to the puzzle, seeing things on its grand scale, is that while curses are given to the man and the woman and the serpent, you know those follow, right? There is a promise of redemption made already at this point in Scripture, and that is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is a very important verse in all of your Bible. You should know that. It should be underlined. It should be highlighted unless you don't write in your Bible, okay? Genesis 3.15 says of the serpent, to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now that's such a vague idea. What in the world are we talking about? That is, there's a snake. Well, we know the snake caused a problem. So, and the snake was in opposition to God. So in general terms, the enemy of God will get a, a pretty bad head wound. Right? And the enemy of God who gets the head wound is going to attempt to wound the seed of the woman, but he's just going to strike him on the heel and it's not going to affect him very much. Because a head wound is far more serious than an ankle wound if he didn't know. And so he becomes the one anticipated, the seed of the woman, a man. Right? A man. A man is going to come one day who will defeat the enemy of God and restore man to the paradise that he has lost. Do you see it? But it's very vague, isn't it? That's such a a vague idea at this point. And that takes us back. Image in your mind. The triangle. Very large, vague understanding through Adam. Okay, of guy is going to come and he's going to crush his serpent. What what does that mean? What does that look like? When are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? What what do we need to do to get the benefits of that? We have none of those answers right now. But we have a promise of redemption, don't we? We have the fall of humanity and the promise of God's redemption. So a redeemer will come from the seed of the woman. That is from the line of Adam. And he will destroy the serpent, bring restoration. That's what he's going to do. Now, he's going to come from the line of Adam, but as we move forward, we're going to understand with more clarity where exactly this Messiah is going to come from, right? Where the Redeemer is going to come from. Because he doesn't just come from the line of Adam generally, right? This really vague idea. But more specifically, as we move down the line, we're going to see that he's going to come from Noah. Oh, because he has to, right? And then he's going to come from Abraham. He's going to be of Israel. He's going to come from the line of who? David. And then how does the New Testament start? The son of Abraham, the son of David. Why? Because God has been telling us this story all along. And now we see this one who's coming. This promised redeemer who's going to destroy the enemy and bring restoration. I'll mention here just briefly Matthew 121 She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. You see that? That's Matthew 1, 21, verses, 20, uh, Matthew 1 verses 21 through 23. She will bear a son. A woman from the line of Adam is going to have a son, And he is going to bring redemption. So we see very vague ideas moving toward clarity and the last Adam coming and doing what he could not do. Him coming and doing what all of humanity could not do. Now, how does this relate to the story of Noah? That was lightning speed through the story of Adam. I know that. But let's get to Noah because it's part of the same promise. It's part of the same covenant. So let's move to Noah. And so we don't have to go very far in your text, though, if you're in Genesis, because now we just need to look at Genesis chapter 6. So much happens in the few beginning chapters of our Bible. It's unbelievable, but it sets the course for all that is to come. You miss that. You're not seeing the big picture of what God's been doing all along. So Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8, let's start there. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So Adam and Eve had kids and their kids were uh, good kids, good, you know, faithful, God-loving kids. They loved each other. They gave each other hugs. Uh, One killed the other, if you don't know that. So wickedness came in the earth how? uh, uh, Immediately, right? Wickedness comes immediately. Because humanity, humanity's line from Adam is cursed. And they're sinful from the get-go, sinful from the beginning. In sin does our mother even conceive us. We are cursed, all of us. But was true even then, right? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a description of humanity that Every single one of your thoughts, and in your heart, you're only doing evil all the time. All the earth was like that, and God was not content to let it stay that way, was He? Why? Why not just let them be? Why not let creation go its own course? Because creation does not get to decide the path and plan of God. God has a plan, and the fall of humanity into sin did not catch him off guard. He's got a plan to take it all the way to the end, doesn't he? So he regretted that he made man on the earth. It grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man whom I have created on the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds. I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in his sight. That's amazing, isn't it? How did Noah escape? all the corruption, why wasn't he only evil all the time in his heart? What is the answer to that? God had a plan to bring about a redeemer and if he cut off every living person from the planet, what would he not be able to fulfill? His promise to bring about a redeemer from the seed of the woman. You understand that? So we could not kill them all, although they deserved it. By the way, you should know that Noah was not perfect. If Noah had been perfect, that would have meant that we also had a chance of being perfect. Noah needed a redeemer as well. But by his grace, God preserved him, didn't he? God always does a work of preserving. He's seeing his plan through. It's very important. I'm trying to press that home. God is always seeing his plan through. God established a covenant at creation And that covenant, what we see now, is upheld in the story with Noah. That's what happens next. That's our next big important point. God establishes a covenant at creation. We saw that. And now that covenant is being upheld in the story with Noah. There is not a new covenant being established here. It is the upholding of a previous covenant he had already made. It's just that now we get the terminology of covenant. Look at Genesis 6 verses 9 through 13. So these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Pause. Who else walked with God? Adam walked with God. Right? And Noah had three sons. Who else had three sons? Adam had three sons. Now, he had other sons as well, other sons and daughters. But Scripture specifically seems to go into detail here representing Noah as a second Adam. A man who walks with God, who has three sons, maybe this guy who walks with God and has three sons will make a better humanity than the first Adam. That's the picture. Do you see it? The earth was corrupt in God's sight. That's verse 11. Sham, Hem, and Japheth, right? I have three birds in my office that Jim gave me. They're not real birds. I named them Sham, Hem, and Japheth. (laughs) Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and I will destroy them with the earth. So because God made a promise, he's going to fulfill his promises. The pre-fall covenant established with Adam as its covenant head now has a new representative covenant head who is Noah and that's how it's working okay that's where we're at but we have to move because <coughs> it doesn't remain this way we have Noah and the confirmation of the covenant right but now confirmation of the covenant right but now what we see <coughs> moving to chapter 8 is Noah's sin and the remaining promise see Even when sin creeps in, God remains faithful to his promises. I'm going to say that again because that's very important for us to understand, not only in God's storyline, but in your life. In the midst of sin, God remains faithful to his promises. All who call on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. But what if I call on the name of Jesus Christ in faith, and then tomorrow I make a mistake? Does God take back his promise of salvation just because you made a mistake? No, never. He is a God who fulfills his promises because we're imperfect. Because we are imperfect, he must do the work of salvation. That's the thing. That's what God is doing all along. He's the one saving, always. It's not you that saves, it's not you that remains saved or keeps yourself saved. It's always God. God is the one doing the work. If it was left up to you, you'd have no chance. Not one of us would have a chance. How does that work itself out in the story of Noah? Chapter 8, verses 20 20 through 22. So Noah, now I'm I'm skipping the the flood story in a sense. Uh, God sends rain and the, the fountains of the deep and the sky burst open. I have a theory on that, Right? Uh, the sky burst open and the floodgates uh, all fill the earth and uh, lots of things change after that. People don't live as long. You read the first chapters of Genesis and people are living like a thousand years and you say, why doesn't that happen anymore? Well, the very nature of earth itself changes after the flood and men are no longer able to live as long. So God caps humanity at about 120 years. Before Mankind was on a vegetarian diet. After the flood, God gives them animals to eat. Things change, but God's promise and God's plan does not change. So here's where we see the covenant. Noah built an altar. I'm in chapter eight, verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. He offered the burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, listen to what God said in his heart. After the flood, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For, here's why, the intention of man's heart is evil even from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. God's making a promise. Do you hear it? While the earth remains, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, and night shall not cease. If you have fears of global warming and we're not going to have winter anymore, that's not what the Bible says. Until the end the seasons will remain. God is the one in charge of that, okay? God has just made a promise to what or to who? This is a covenant with creation itself and with every living thing on it. That includes humanity, that includes the animals, it includes creation itself. Do you know that God cares for his creation? Do you know that he cares for the animals that he's created? And above all, do you know that he cares about you? Because you were created in his image. He created you. And the point of him creating you was that you might see him and give him the glory he deserves. He is a good God. He is worthy to be praised. God will not continue to restart humanity with a new covenant head. See, if that was God's plan every time, every... I don't know, day, God would have to send a flood on the earth and kill them all and then have a new guy with a new start of creation. Well, they messed up. Kill them all again. And let's start up. He'd have to keep doing that, wouldn't he? But God just said, I'm not going to do that anymore. Why? He had to do it once. Why? Not because God's plan changed. That's the point. It's not because his plan changed. It's because he wanted us to see it. He wanted us to get it. I could kill you all. It's what you deserve. You understand that. Rebellious from our youth. Black hearts that want to turn away from God. That is what we deserve. But God is a good God and he has promised of redemption. He has love for his creation and he has made a way for things to be back to how they should be. And that's what redemption is all about. This restart of creation doesn't fix the problem of sinful hearts, does it? You see, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, they were not perfect. They didn't look and say, God just killed everyone in a flood. Uh, I know that. So I'm going to live my life upright. (laughs) Because I don't want them to do that again. I don't want to be wiped out. And so it made them perfect human beings? no it didn't did it why couldn't they change why couldn't they be perfect why couldn't they learn the answer they can't they are cursed their hearts are cursed and the curse must be lifted someone needs to make right all that has gone wrong and god has already promised to do it even from the beginning God is going to make all things right. But right now, in this story, we don't quite get it yet. We have a vague picture of what's about to happen and we understand God's character and what he can do and what he should do. But we know that God is making promises of redemption and he's going to fulfill his promises. Chapter nine. God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth. Pause. Who, what does that sound like? We already talked about it. It talks about the charge given to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? It's because he is a new type of Adam, right? This is a new start to creation. This is a new start to humanity. So now I'm going to tell you what I told Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. Now, do they do it perfectly? It continues on. I want to jump down to verse 6. If you're in chapter 9, jump down to verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by his own blood shall it be shed. For God made man in his own image and you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you with every living creature that is with you. Who is God establishing his covenant with? With the people and with the animals, and with the creation itself. I'm I'm pressing that in because too often we narrow the scope of God's covenant relationship. Okay? God has a plan for all of his creation, not just humanity. And he's restoring all things, not just humanity's relationship with him. However, that is the highlight, isn't it? That is the focus. He says in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all... Flesh be cut off by waters. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And this is the sign of my covenant. What is the sign of God's covenant? The rainbow. Yes. The rainbow belongs to believers. Because we understand what it means. The rainbow in the sky is God's promise that he will keep his covenant stipulations himself. Regardless of what all we do in the meantime. God has a singular plan. He's going to see it through. We can't mess it up. We we feel like we can. We can't mess up the plans of God. Now, I will say, I think it's important, I'm going to say this quick, I'm going to move on from it. you have more questions about it, maybe I'll cover this in the addendum tomorrow, okay? But, There's a a concept here that you might be thinking, well, God never said he established a covenant with Adam, but he does say he establishes a covenant with Noah. Seems to be a new covenant relationship. However, um, there's actually a a phrase here that's used for establishing a covenant. And whose wedding was it where I talked about a covenant? Allison and Chaney's. You remember that? You probably don't. You had other things on your mind. I talked about what a a covenant is and, and... the term used in Hebrew is karat barith, and that means to cut a covenant, okay? And uh, Sam next week is actually going to cover a little bit about the symbolism of that, because when God establishes his covenant with with, uh, Abraham, an animal gets cut in half, right? And the whole point is that uh, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, or you don't, then you're going to get cut in half like this animal. So it means to cut a covenant. But But karat barith, cut a covenant, is not used here with Noah. Instead, it's hakim barith, which doesn't mean to cut a covenant. It doesn't mean to establish a new covenant. It means to uphold a previously existing covenant. Where was the other covenant that he's upholding? It was with humanity and creation. It was with everything that he had made. He is personal. He is there. He is near and he cares. He has a relationship And God is upholding all those promises here with Noah. You see it? I hope you do. So, this brand new start for humanity doesn't accomplish peace with God, does it? It doesn't establish a lasting, unstained relationship with him in paradise, does it? Is that what, after the flood, humanity was in perfect relationship with God, they walked with God, they gave him praise and they never sinned again. Now, the reader might expect that in a sense, but God is very quick to say, but humanity is going to continue in sin. I'm just not going to do this again. Instead, I'm going to redeem humanity a different way because it can't be dependent on humanity to save themselves. So I'm going to save them. I alone with my strong hand, I will deliver them myself. So he himself is born as a man to deliver humanity and restore all that was lost. That's God's plan from the beginning. Now, the story of this continues. Genesis 11, one through nine. I'm not gonna go into detail about that this morning, but what is that story? That's the the story of the Tower of Babel, right? God told them to go and fill the earth and increase and multiply, and what did they do? They huddled together and didn't go and fill the creation that God had given them. Immediately, they want to make a name for themselves. That's what the scriptures say. Rather than making a name for God and doing what he has commanded, humanity immediately rebels against God. And so this is when God then confuses the language, the place is called Babel, and, and then the people spread out. Why? Because that's what God intended and he was going to see that they did it. Right. Okay, so just some summary points. We're going to bring this to a close this morning. Adam was not good enough. Did you see that this morning? Noah was not good enough. Did you see that this morning? The new start to creation wasn't good enough. Did you see that this morning? I hope so. Even wiping out all flesh wasn't good enough. The problem of sin is becoming the clear issue. So if the issue of sin is not dealt with perfectly and thoroughly, then what hope does humanity have? None. We can't do it ourselves. So the Redeemer is going to come. He's gonna come through the line of Adam. But now, more specifically, we see he's gonna come through the line of Noah. And then we're gonna see next week, more specifically, he's gonna come through the line of Abraham. Okay? This Redeemer is coming. God promised him Genesis 3.15. He is coming. And God is telling us his story but it's starting out very vague. But the thing is that we know the final clarity of what God is doing. But we have to see that God's been telling this story the whole time. Christmas Day is the climax of the story. He's here. He's come. The Redeemer of all humanity has finally come. Thank God that he has been faithful to his promise. I'm going to reference just uh, quickly again Matthew one twenty one, but from a different perspective. Do you remember when we read this earlier? She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you remember that? The name Jesus, I've explained to you before. His name would have been pronounced Yeshua. And that's a, it's the name Joshua. But it It's a a kind of a compound name. Ye stands for the Tetragrammaton, which is uh, Yahweh, Okay, Y-H-W-H. So it's God, is the first part of the name Yeshua. And then Shua means salvation in Hebrew. God is salvation, that is what the name Jesus means. So you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because God's about to save you. And he's the one to do it. God is bringing salvation himself. He's going to deliver you. He will be the last Adam. He will be the proper representative of the human race. He will initiate a final great covenant with the people. He will bring us into the land of promise, one where man has perfect and lasting relationship with God forever in paradise. He is the one to do it. He is the one we celebrate. He is the one that we give our lives to. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, perhaps it's because you never understood who He was. Maybe it's because this great story of the Bible was never clearly communicated to you. You didn't get the whole point, you didn't see the whole picture. I, I hope this morning that it's become clear humanity cannot save themselves, you cannot save yourself. And you might ask, what do I need to be saved from? You need to be saved from the fact that you are a cursed individual and that just like in Noah's day, your thoughts, whether you realize it or not, are are evil continually. Why? Because you have not yet given your thoughts to God himself. Because you have not placed your faith in him. Because you do not give God the glory as God. And so because of that, because you have rebelled against God, just like when he wiped all humanity off the face of the planet, just like when he told Adam and Eve, you're going to die now, sin has consequences. You will not escape the consequences for your sin. That is, left to yourself. God has made a way for you to escape the consequences of sin. And that is by placing your faith in the Redeemer the one he promised to send, who is Jesus Christ, the Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? You will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty you deserve for your sin. It's time to put our life in perspective, isn't it? Not only for those who have been believers for a very long time, but possibly for those who have not yet committed their life to Jesus Christ, placed your faith in him and repented of your sins. Today is the day to do that. We don't know how many days we have to live. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing one last song as we reflect on these things and give God glory together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your greatness and your promises that you have given us in Jesus Christ. You've been telling us this story from the beginning. And I pray that over these next five weeks that that story will for us become clearer and clearer that we might see your greatness and your glory for all that it is and all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for everyone in this room today that we would be living our lives properly representational of you on this planet. But we understand that that's impossible without the Spirit of God coming into us and changing us, and that's impossible to have without faith in Jesus Christ, who is our only way to restore a right relationship with you. And you have given us a promise of a hope of a future inheritance in the new creation. That is where you're leading us all. That's what you've given us. You've given us what we could never attain on our own. Perfect fellowship with you in paradise forever. God, we praise you for what you've done, and I pray, Lord, that you would press conviction onto all of our hearts this morning, that we might give you the praise you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. To